Last week, we looked at the book of Amos. Amos, who talked about holding up a plumb line to Israel. And if you'll remember, Amos was rural part of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was right across the border from Israel. He walks into Israel and he takes them to task. He was a keeper of figs, a keeper of sheep. God called him to cross over and prophesy to the nation of Israel. And he prophesied their destruction. And then I gave you some takeaways from that. Times of great ease and prosperity, it can create an environment that makes, us, makes it easy for us to fall away. It's easy to trust in ourselves rather than God. Other takeaway. It's always easier to see how others are wrong and deserving of punishment than to see how we're wrong and deserving of punishment. Another takeaway. We seek out many things in this life, but it's only when we seek out the Lord that we really experience life. And so, those were the takeaways out of the book of Amos. Tonight, we go into this book. That's a big O on that bed, Obed. It's to remind you that it's Obediah, right? Behind the bed, there are twin brothers, and they're holding a key. You're going to figure out what that's about as we go through the book of Obadiah, because it is very much about twin brothers who become related nations. And the key, it basically asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? That's what the key is all about, right? So keep this picture in mind as we go through, and, and it's all going to fall into place. The picture is going to fall into place. You're going to get it. So tonight, we'll talk about Obadiah. Obadiah, we hardly know anything about Obadiah. We really don't know anything about Obadiah. What we do know is that his name means worshiper of Yahweh or worshiper of the Lord. And we know that he's unique because he's the, the one prophet who didn't prophesy to Judah and he didn't prophesy to Israel. He prophesied to a completely different nation, the nation of Edom. Makes him very unique because all the other prophets are prophesying to God's people. Obadiah is prophesying to not God's people, if you will. So, that's what we know about Obadiah. Now, let's look and see what we know about the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, 21 verses. And it's rather ironic that we've gone through like Amos and, and uh, you know, Joel, some of those books that had nine chapters, 12 chapters. We did that in one night. We're going to spend one night doing 21 verses. So go figure, right? It's, it was written sometime after the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and hauled the people away into exile. It's written sometime after that. Its major theme is the coming of destruction upon Edom. You know, most of the books we've read and the prophets we've studied have been talking about the coming destruction on Israel or the coming destruction on Judah. This is about the coming destruction on the nation of Edom. Now, Edom was this mountainous region, very mountainous, rocky region, just south and southeast of the nation of Judah, of Jerusalem. It's like if you see the Dead Sea and Jerusalem's kind of over here, 
Edom's on the other side of the Dead Sea and a little bit south of there. Uh, and what was their crime? Their crime was their callous disregard for the nation of Judah. You'll, you'll understand more about that as we go through the book. That was their crime. Their callous disregard of Judah when it was being attacked by the Babylonians. So when the Babylonians were wiping out Judah, Edom didn't care. Matter of fact, they aided in that endeavor. And why is that such a big deal? We'll find out. Let me give you a short two-piece outline, and then we'll get into this book. Outline. You can break the book up. The first 16 chapters are about Edom's doom. And the last five verses is about Israel's deliverance. I mean, that's a, it's a, you only have 21 chapters. You can't get a whole big outline out of this. That's, that's basically the outline. Okay. Edom's doom, the first two-thirds of the book. Israel's deliverance, the last third of the book, roughly. All right? So we need to get into this book. But before we get into this book, we have got to get a backstory. This book doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't understand the backstory. And to get the backstory, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis. To get the backstory on, on the book of Obadiah and what's happening, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 12, God calls a pagan worshiper of sun and moon and stars, somebody who did not know him from Adam, so to speak, and calls him out and says, you know what? I'm going to start a nation out of you. You're going, to, you're going to be the one who creates a nation of my people. And he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he wanders in what would later be the promised land. But he wanders as a vagabond. He and his family, they just wander in tents. And the problem with this is how can you be the father of a mighty nation of people whose people are as large as the sands on the seashore or as many as the stars in the sky when you're already old and you have no children? This is Abraham's problem or Abram's problem. And so eventually God gives Abram a son by the name of Oh, that was weak. That's like, I think I know the answer, but I'm not really sure. I'm going to mumble it. Abraham has a son by the name of? Isaac. Isaac, exactly. And we all know about Isaac. He was the promised one. He shouldn't have been born. His parents were way past childbearing years. They tried to, to fudge that by taking a handmaiden and conceiving with her. And God says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. They give Abraham, a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac, everything rides on Isaac. And then one day, God says to Abraham, okay, kill him, which is kind of an odd request, actually. And so you know about Abraham taking his son up to sacrifice him to the Lord, and God stops that just to say, hey, I just needed to know that you loved me above anything and everything else. And so Isaac is spared. Isaac eventually marries a lady by the name of Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, twins. Okay, remember the picture, the twins? They have two sons that are twins. And these sons are at each other's throat before they even get out of the womb. Before they're even out of the womb, they are at each other's throats. If you got your Bible, look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 25. 
very interesting passage of Scripture. These two are very interesting people, actually. Uh, Genesis chapter 25. If I can get my fingers to work, I'll get there. There we go. And we're going to start in verse 22, let's say. One more page, and they're stuck together. I'm going to go back to my old Bible where the pages came apart. Ta-da. Okay. Genesis 25, starting verse 22. The children struggled together within her, that is Rebecca, struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now remember, no ultrasounds, you know, you don't know what's going on in there. She doesn't know it's twins. She just knows something's going on. And so she went to inquire of the Lord, which was the next best thing to the ultrasound, right? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger and the other, strong, excuse me, stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. It's kind of ironic. You know, if one is stronger than the other, you expect him to be the ruler, if you will. And they said, no, it's not going to be that way. The younger is going to serve the older. And then look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means the grabber or the cheater. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore or Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, so, so you have two brothers who are fighting in the womb. Fighting in the womb. And then they're fighting on the way out. And, and, and you know, have you ever, sometimes I bring, I, I meet two of my grandchildren here at church for, for preschool or for Mother's Day out. And so they go down to my office and it's always a fight on who's going to open the door. It's always a fight about who's going to open the door. And they will pull on the handle and I can't even get my key to work because they want to be the first one to go through the door. This is what was happening with Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were fighting in the womb. They were fighting on the way out of the womb. And, and the reason this is so important is because the older, whether it's older by several years or older by a few minutes, the older gets the greatest portion of the inheritance and tends to be the patriarch when the patriarch dies. So, so there's, there's this authority, there's this rule, there's this money and inheritance. So you want to be the first one out the door, right? And, uh, and so Esau makes it out first, so he's got that cherished position. Now, they continue to fight. They continue to bicker. They continue to contest one another. And you know the story about when they're older and Esau goes out in the field to hunt 
And uh, he comes in famished. And Jacob is cooking a pot of bean soup, if you will. And Esau's famished and he wants some. And Jacob said, I'll sell it to you. I'll trade you. I'll trade you your birthright for this bean soup. Okay, remember what his name is? His name is Jacob. He's the grabber, the cheater, the manipulator, if you will. And you would think Esau would be smarter than this, but he's not because Esau lives for the moment and he lives for his passions and he lives for his hungers. And so he says, absolutely, you can have it. And so Jacob cheats Esau out of his birthright. You hear this? They're still doing this. Now the birthright is no good unless you get the father's blessing. So when Isaac was near death and he was blind and couldn't see, he wanted to call the older son in and give him his blessing. And Jacob, the cheater, by direction of his mother, dresses up in Esau's clothes, puts goat hair on his hands so he feels hairy, just to go in and cheat Esau out of his blessing. And he does. What do you think Esau felt about that? You know, it's one thing to hand over your birthright. It's another thing to get cheated out of the blessing that basically stamps approval on it. So this is who they are. This is how they have functioned all this time. Jacob swindles Esau. And so Esau's angry. And so there's this grudge match. There's this ongoing rift and division between them. Now Esau is also known by a, another name, and Jacob is known by another name. Jacob is known eventually by the name Israel. So Jacob is Israel, and out of Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Esau is known by a different name. Esau is known by the name Edom. So out of Esau or out of Edom becomes the nation of Eden. So now you not, have, you not only have Edom and Israel fighting with one another, now you have two nations eventually that are at odds with one another. And they're right across the border from one another. Right across the border from one another. Uh, this is the setting for the book of Edom, uh, for the book of Obadiah. This is the setting. Now, Look at Deuteronomy chapter 2. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 2. And look at verse 12. If this was Bible drill, I would be losing this evening. All right, verse 12. The Horites lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau disposed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. This is where Esau, the people of Esau, become the Edomites in this land of Seir, which becomes known as Edom. All right? Now, there is, 
like I said, this is a very rocky, this is a very mountainous region. And some of you are thinking, why is he going through all this? This is all going to fit together in just a few minutes. But let's talk about this. It's a very rocky, it's a very mountainous. This is the place where the city of Petra is. So if you've heard of the city of Petra, this was the territory of the Edomites, the city of Petra. And uh, listen to this description. This description comes from a, a book by Henrietta Mears called What the Bible is All About. Petra is one of the wonders of the world. Let me show you a picture of Petra today. Very high up, very mountainous, rocky, craggy, clefts in the rock kind of place. Petra is one of the wonders of the world. It was a city unique of its kind among the works of humans. It's perched like an eagle's nest amid inaccessible mountain fastness. Its only approach was through a deep rock cleft more than a mile long, with massive cliffs more than 700 feet high rising on either side. The city was able to withstand any invasion. There were, we are told that there were temples that numbered in the thousands in this area. They were cut out of the pink rocks on the side. Look at the cleft. This is the way you got into that area. Dwellings were hewn out of caves and soft red sandstone. It's a place where you could hardly believe that humans could even climb. Now, what does that tell you, I mean, about, about the nation of Edom, about the Edomites? I mean, what's, what's the benefits of this? I mean, to us, it looks like kind of a tough place to live. But put yourself back in that time. What would be the benefits of living there? Security. Security. Absolutely. Nobody can get to you. You can see them coming a mile away. They have to pass through this ravine. You pick them off easy. You know? So they felt really good about themselves. They were very sure of themselves. Very cocky. Very arrogant. Very prideful in who they were and where they were. Now, there's this little twist that you find out in the book of Deuteronomy also. The descendants of Jacob, or the descendants of Israel, were told to treat the descendants of Esau, or the Edomites, they were told to treat them well. If you look at Deuteronomy 23, again, it seems minor, but it's really important. Deuteronomy 23 Starting in verse 7. God speaking to the Israelites. You shall not abhor an Edomite. For he is your brother. Why? Comes from the twins, Jacob and Esau. They're related. You will not abhor an Edomite because he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a soldier in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, God's saying, remember, they're your kin. Treat them well. The problem with this is the descendants of Esau or the Edomites, they didn't feel that way. They nursed a generational grudge. 
a bad generational grudge. And it gets worse. Okay, this whole thing gets worse. In the Exodus, when, when God delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt and they're headed to the promised land, they want to go through the land of Edom. And they address the king of Edom and say, hey, would you let us pass? We won't steal any of your stuff. We won't eat your food. We won't drink your... I mean, we just need passage through. And the king of Edom would not allow that to happen. And, and ran them off, threatened them. And so that didn't go well. You see, two twins that couldn't get along in the womb, they still can't get along. They're still fighting together. All right? And, and so that didn't work well. And the greatest insult of all is when the Babylonians come in and wipe out the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. Here are the Edomites just across the border, up on their little perch, watching. And they didn't lift a finger to help. Not only did they not lift a finger to help, they actually went and looted a lot of the, the cities in Jerusalem, in, in Judah rather. They went and looted and took some of their stuff. They kept the exiles that were trying to escape out of Jerusalem, the, the, the refugees that were running for cover, they would not let them escape. And they even captured some of them and gave them to the Babylonians. They, they took their kin, the descendants of Israel, they took them to task. And they were arrogant about it. Okay, all of this is backstory and all of this is set up for what we're getting ready to read. All right, with all of that in mind, just let all of those pieces kind of fall into place as we read through the book of Obadiah. So take your Bibles, go to Obadiah. We'll take the first part of this outline, the first 16 verses, and we'll read them. There's a lot of similarities between Obadiah and Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah chapter 49 and the book of Obadiah, there's a lot of similarities between those two. Some of it almost sounds word for word. So we don't know who is a contemporary of who. Well, let's start in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Edom, excuse me, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, among the Gentile nations. Rise up, let us rise up against her for battle. Rise up against Edom. The her is Edom. So messengers go out, God basically saying, hey, I'm sending out word to all the Gentile nations, the ones who don't believe in me, don't follow me, and I'm basically telling them they're all going to rise up against Edom. Behold, verse 2, I will make you small among the nations. Remember I told you about their pride and their arrogance? I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised, not by Israel, by the nations, by all the surrounding nations. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwellings, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So all that stuff I was talking about starting to make sense now, 
If you don't have the backstory, you don't quite get this. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? In other words, if thieves came in, they're, they're going to leave something. They're not going to take everything. And then if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Would they not just leave some around the edges? They're not going to take everything. How Esau, in comparison, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. All these people you trusted, all these Gentile nations, they're the ones that are going to drive you out. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. The, the Edomites were thought to be a very wise people. Uh, lots of libraries, lots of study, lots of learning, and God says it's not going to help you. Basically, God says, there won't be anything left of you. Look at verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? In other words, your wisdom won't save you. All your alliances are not going to save you. Oh, your wisdom is not going to save you. All your defensible positions are not going to save you. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, so your strength will not save you. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. All right? And just make a note. You can go to to Jeremiah 29 and verse 7 through 16. You'll find a lot of similarities between the verses we read and those also. Okay, and then he talks about why this is going to happen. This is what's going to happen to you, Edom. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no defense you have. There's nothing that's going to save you from it. Now, let me tell you why. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. He's talking about the children of Israel. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day, on the day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers were carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But, now here's a series of about eight do-nots. They're written as if, don't do this in the future. But it's really a kind of a poetic device that says, you shouldn't have done this. But you did. Verse 12. But do not gloat over the day your brother, over that, uh, excuse me, over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. So don't gloat over what happened to them. And so what that means is this is exactly what they did. They gloated. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. And they did. Do not boast in the day of distress. They did. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And they did. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. And do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. This is all the things that Edom did. 
And what makes it so specifically heinous is they were doing that to their own kinfolk. They were doing that to their own relatives. Because they come from twins, Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. And God said, you should not have done that. And this is the reason God's going to completely wipe them out. Okay, so that's the first part, Eden's doom. Let's take a two more verses and finish out the doom, and then we'll go to the deliverance. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Now, all of a sudden, it's spread. It's not just Edom. It's all nations, basically all nations that act this way. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. And they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So God basically says, he makes a shift and goes, okay, what I'm telling you, Edom, is going to happen to you because of these things you've done. This is exactly what's going to happen to all nations because of these kind of things that they've done. And so it's not... It starts off being a, a tag Edom, you're it. And now it's encompassing a lot of nations. And interesting thing, some of these nations that were going to face the same kind of punishment that Edom did were some of the nations God was going to use to take out Edom. Very, God's this amazing chess player. And so... This is the doom that's coming, first on Edom and then all other nations that act like her. Now, let's look at the deliverance. Starting in verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. Not only will they possess their possessions, get back their land, get back their stuff, not only will that eventually happen, but they will eventually be like a, a grass fire that spreads out into the other territories. So they shall be like a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those in the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shelephath, I had that earlier, Shephelah, shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Basically, what it's saying is God's people are going to begin to spread out and take over all of this area. The ones that were wiped out and carried off into exile are coming back, and they're going to regain. And they're going to regain even more than what they had. The exiles of this host of the people Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the, land, the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's very much like all the other prophets we've read that are very gloom and very doom and very destruction until you get to the end, and God says, 
But you know what? I'm going to pull you back out of the fire. You know, despite all of this, I'm pulling you back out of the fire. Not because you deserve it, but because you're my people, because I love you, and because I'm going to pull you back and put you back on the right track. So this is the book of Obadiah. It's a very interesting book when you know all the backstory. Uh, so let's talk about some takeaways. Let's talk about some takeaways. They're really very simple takeaways. Here's the first one. Pride comes before a fall. Or some translations say before destruction. We know that. We quote that. We spout. We tell our children that. But we're still very prideful. We really are. Uh, And we don't like to admit it, and we probably want to say, well, I'm not as bad as some people I've met, but but we we are. It's part of our sin nature. And, And this was part of the downfall of the Edomites where they were just prideful. They were angry for generations. And out of that anger and out of where they lived and out of what they had amassed and, and this great defensible position they had, they just got prideful. And so none of us live on the cliffs above everybody else. But most of us have more stuff than a lot of people have. And even the poorest among us is like the richest over 80%, 90% of the world. You know, we hear a lot of talk about the 1%, but you know what? If you want to look globally, you're the 1%. And it's really easy to get comfortable in that. And, And not just get comfortable in that, but get a little prideful in that. But... As you see from the passage, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That was part of Edom's downfall. So, that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway. It looks like the first, doesn't it? (laughs) Trusting in yourself is a bad bet. You know, I don't know why I think I can get myself out of some of this stuff that I got myself into. I mean, I'm the guy that got me there. What makes me think I can get me out of it? So trusting in ourselves is a very bad bet. Listen to Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's really hard to do if you're prideful. It's easier to do if you're humble. And, and so, you guys are probably a much more spiritual than I am. I'm just, I'm kind of guessing. Because when I get in a jam, here's the way it usually works for me. I work every angle, try everything I know to do, work as hard as I can to get myself out of it. And then when that doesn't work, then I pray and ask God. Yeah, I'm probably the only person in the room that does that. But, uh, but isn't that a bad bet? I mean, isn't that trusting in me rather than trusting in him? 
Wouldn't it save me a lot of trouble if I just went to him first? You know? My, my granddaughter, we were going to school this morning, and, and I'm saying, come on, we're going to be late. Come on, we're going to be late. And she took that moment to decide she wanted to walk to the car backwards. <laughs> and just about this pace, you know? Uh, and she would not be deterred from that. You couldn't convince her that there was an easier way, that there was a better way. She had to do it that way. That's funny, but we all do that in our own ways with God. We do. We, we want to convince him we know what we're doing. We got a better way. This will work. And when you trust in yourself, it's just a bad bet. Another takeaway. Everybody knows this. You reap what you sow. Another thing that the Edomites were doing, they were prideful, they were trusting in themselves, and they were getting ready to reap exactly what they sowed. I mean, it even said that, you know, as it was done to you, it'll be done, as you did to them, it'll be done to you. That's what that verse is. Remember Galatians 6 verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I mean, simple. What, what you sow, you reap. What the Edomites sowed, they reaped. Or Proverbs 22, verse 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Now, you might say, okay, God told the children of Israel not to abhor the Edomites because they were relatives. Well, it doesn't look like it worked that well for them. Because the Babylonians still wiped them out, right? But if you follow it further out, it really did work for them. It really did work. You will reap what you sow. Timing, I don't know anything about timing. It's never as quickly as I want, you know. Uh, I mean, we all want people to get their just desserts, unless it's us, and then we want grace and mercy, right? Right? You know, get them, give me grace. But, but it's, it's this deal that we will all reap what we sow. And you may say it's not coming fast enough. It's not happening hard enough. It doesn't make any difference. I've always told my children, be above board. Stay above board. It will always pay off. Eventually, it will always pay off. So, you reap what you sow. You get to choose. You get to choose. All right, last takeaway. We may finish a little early tonight. You are your brother's keeper. Let me just answer that question for you. You are your brother's keeper. Remember what happens in Genesis. Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Abel. God seems to show favoritism to Abel and not Cain. Now we know that's not exactly true because scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. So we know God wasn't playing favorites. And if you read the text really close, it talks more about what they were bringing to God and not bringing to God. But anyway, Cain doesn't like that because Abel seems to be showing favoritism, being shown favoritism and uh, Cain clubs him with a rock. 
hey, come out in the field, let's look at this, and bashes his brains out with a rock. And God confronts Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? What have you done? And let me just read it to you, Genesis 4, 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to the question is yes. Yes, we are all our brother's keeper. Now, lest you think I forgot the video, that's what the video is all about. We are our brother's keeper. That we are called to be a blessing to the people. God told Abraham, you will be a blessing to the nations. We are called to be a blessing to the nations. We are not called to look down on them or make fun of them or say, hey, you made your bed, lie. We are called to be a blessing to the nations. We are our brother's keeper. And that happens, can happen in a million different ways throughout the course of a single day. That can happen in a million different ways. This morning, the way I had to be my brother's keeper was let a two-year-old walk slowly backwards without saying, would you turn around and move? It's a small way, but I am my brother's keeper. We all are our brother's keeper. Edomites did not get that. And they paid the ultimate price for that. That should not happen to us. That really should not happen to us. Who is it in your life that's in need or stressed or have their back up against the wall or something that would be really easy for you to say, well, God bless you, I'm praying for you, and then just keep on going? Who's your brother that needs a little keeping? Because if we don't do that, then we're like the Edomites. We're prideful and think, you know, we got better things to do. They got themselves into it. It's, it's a look down your nose kind of thing. So we become like the Edomites. So we are our brother's keeper. All right, that's all I got. You got anything? What did you get out of this book? You know, I will wait you out just for my own ego's sake. I just, I just will. It's just too hard on me to think you didn't get anything out of this. So I'm just going to stand here. What do you get out of the book of Obadiah? Is it just a history book about two peoples? Or does it apply to us? What do you think? Yeah, or how we shouldn't live. One of the two, yeah. What do you think the Israelites thought when their own relatives were looting and pillaging with the Babylonians, stopping them from escaping and turning them over to the Babylonians? What do you think they thought? Because remember, they were not to abhor the Edomites. They were supposed to treat them well. What do you think they thought? Well, let me rephrase this then to help you out. Has there any been, ever been somebody in your life who mistreated you, 
treated you wrong, seemed to get all the breaks, kind of those people that when you walk by would trip you, you know, kind of those people. And they kept getting these breaks and everything seemed to be going well for them. And then when you needed a help, they wouldn't help you. What did you think then? Yes, thank you. Absolutely, you hate those people. It's probably the same for the Israelites. God, why, are, why is this happening? Why are you letting them succeed and carrying us off into Babylonian captivity? Don't you care? Does it not pay to be above board anymore to do the right thing? Should we just be like everybody else? Should we be Edomites? We live in this world. This is not some place over in the Holy Land. We live in this world. And so these are the takeaways that Obadiah wanted not only the Edomites to get, but wanted us to get. Yes, ma'am. Well, yeah, we should be more aware of what's going on around us now, but not just now in the nightly news sort of sense, like now in this moment sort of sense, you know. Some of us are so caught up in days and weeks. I just read this this, this afternoon. It just really struck me. Some of us are so caught up in days and weeks and years that we miss the moment. We miss the moment. I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked on church on Sunday morning and somebody new is here. And you can tell them, when they, I mean, you can tell they're new. And they're trying to figure out where to go and what hallway am I supposed to take. And I'll stand back for a while and people just walk right by them. Because they're busy or they're thinking about something else. They're not in the moment. And then eventually I walk up and say, you look really lost. Can I help you find something? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I can't find... But how many people walk by them first? Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely, I'm my brother's keeper in a myriad of ways. All right, 7.30. Let's pray and we'll go home. And then we'll do this all again next week. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for a book that at first glance you think, I'm not getting anything out of this. And yet there is so much there that just kind of bubbles up out of the book towards us. Father, we do suffer from pride and arrogance. We do sow things that we don't want to reap and then get mad when we reap them. We do rely on ourselves way more than we ever should. And we do forget way too often that we are our brother's keeper. Those are very simple takeaways, Father, almost takeaways we would skim over but would you somehow nail those deep into our heart so that we will not be like the Edomites and may you start tonight and we ask for that in Jesus name amen mm -hmm.